1: Uh, I want to welcome everybody to Good News Church today. Uh, It's great to see everybody. Uh, What we're going to do today is uh, we're going to start a new series, and uh, especially if you are a Christian, you're used to this being the the season of Easter. And uh, leading up to Easter, what we're going to do is we're going to take a very slow look at Jesus' road uh, to the cross and finally to its climax on Easter Sunday uh, when we talk about and think about uh, the resurrection. Uh, but before we do, and you know, this is i uh, I don't know if I'm going to say this every Sunday, but uh, this is something that I want us all to be reminded of, uh, that God's word is living and active, and God's word is powerful, and it has the power to transform our hearts. So uh, there is a sense in which uh, we should come really expecting to, to hear from the Lord, and uh, the only way that happens is actually not through a, a good preacher, but the only way that happens is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, if you would bow with me for a moment, and let's pray together. God, we thank you that uh, you are so good, so gracious, that you are light. And uh, in the moments where we are perhaps most in the dark, that by your grace you still shine light. You shine light upon our lives. Uh, You shine light even upon our sin. Uh, But most importantly, you reveal to us uh, the light of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us not to be a people who can... Uh, really gloss over that or take that for granted, but help us to really seek and to desire to persevere to know Christ more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know if you took a look at the weather, but this week is actually supposed to be pretty nice weather-wise. And uh, if you live or if you work in New York, there's probably a certain way in which you kind of walk through the city. And I think when it's winter, when it's cold especially, Uh, You just want to get from point A to point B, and you kind of just put your head down and you just like walk straight through. Most of the time, when we're walking in New York, uh, we're in a hurry. Uh, We're late for something. Most of you were probably walking really quickly to get to church today. And uh, when we do that, uh, something interesting happens is that we actually fail to notice things in the city. Uh, We fail to notice the beauty of the city. And we fail to even notice the hurt in the city. But if you've ever had somebody who's never been to New York and they've come and visit and uh, you're taking them around New York, and oftentimes what they do is they're they're just like in awe of all the tall buildings. Uh, they're in awe of the life of the city. And you'll see a lot of people, they just kind of walk going like this. And that's why I hate walking through Times Square. It's like the most, you know, difficult place to walk through because everybody's just kind of like looking up and walking slow and Uh, They're, you know, a little bit in my way. Uh, But here's the thing. For somebody who hasn't been to New York, uh, they notice really the uh, the amazing architecture of the city. I think they even notice even the the pain of the city. And we're probably used to walking by people on the street or people in the subways. And, uh, you know, people asking for money. It's just kind of, uh, you know, it's just normal. We encounter it every day. But maybe somebody who's never been in New York, they... They actually look at people's faces, and maybe they can see something in their faces, in their eyes. Maybe they can see the pain and the brokenness and the tragedy of people in the streets. But, you know, if you're used to New York and you're walking and trying to get from point A to point B, we don't really notice these kinds of things. You know, if you've been at church for a long time, uh, I wonder how we approach the story of Jesus, and especially the narrative of the Passion, the narrative of when Jesus goes to the cross... And if you've been in the church for a long time, I imagine that perhaps it could be much like somebody in New York walking through the city. Uh, You're so familiar with it that uh, we fail to really be impacted by its beauty, that we fail to be impacted even by its tragedy. And it's really easy to miss some of the features and the wonderful features and the heartbreaking features of the story just because you're, you're very used to it. Uh but if you've never really spent a lot of time in the church and this is not something that you're used to, I would imagine you would actually look at the story and you would probably notice a lot uh more things and a lot more features than perhaps those people who've been in the church for a long time may notice. Uh perhaps you see, wow, this is a really a great injustice or this is a great tragedy of what happened to Jesus, and you you see that. And you're not used to that. Or on the flip side, when you when you Hear about the love of God and how it was demonstrated upon the cross, it's something that, that you notice and you can perhaps at least objectively uh, see that, wow, that is a wonderful and a beautiful thing, and you may not believe it, but at least from the outside you can say that Jesus did something wonderful in his act of love. This month, here's what I want to do. Uh, we're going to take a slow uh, stroll through the end of the Gospel of Mark, through chapter 15 and 16. Uh, which covers really Jesus' experience that led up to uh, the cross, and eventually we're going to look at uh, the resurrection. But here's what I hope that we can see, that this story, this drama that we call the gospel, that we believe to be true, it's, it's really an amazing story. Uh, it's a story that has the power to not only change us individually, but it's, it changed the world. That Jesus... A person named Jesus came and he did some amazing things and he would die on a cross. It changed the world. And, and I want us to feel the, the impact of that and to really get that. Uh, and even if it's something that we've heard since we were a little kid, to be reminded of the amazing uh, truth of this story. Now there's a line that we, uh, we confess in the Apostles' Creed and it says this, It says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, and what I find interesting about that statement, about what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, is that it doesn't say Jesus suffered under a council of Jewish leaders or Jewish elders. And when you read the narrative of the Gospels, uh, you get the feeling that it was the Jewish leaders that really wanted Jesus to die upon a cross. They were the ones who seemed to be the primary orchestrators of Jesus' death. And yet, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we don't say that Jesus suffered under these Jewish leaders. We say Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And even as we look in our passage today, it seems like Pilate, at best, was sympathetic to Jesus. And maybe at worst, he was just indifferent to killing Jesus. And so we ask, why is Pilate the one who is remembered in history as the one Jesus suffered under? And the reason is this. Pilate is the one who had the power and the authority to either crucify Christ or to set him free. These Jewish leaders, they had the passion, they had the desire, but they didn't have any real authority to crucify Jesus because they were ultimately under Roman authority. The Pilate, he has that authority, which is why the Jewish leaders ultimately bring Jesus to him. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this little episode, that little part of the Apostles' Creed where we talked about how Jesus suffered on the Pontius Pilate. We're going to look at this story of how Jesus was in this Roman court before Pilate and what takes place in this Roman trial. And uh, I think with most trials, there's basically three parts, and those are the three parts that we'll look at today. Uh, We'll look at the accusation that Jesus faced. We'll look at the defense that was mounted. And finally, we'll look at the verdict. Okay, The accusation, the defense, and the verdict. Now we look here. What is Jesus being accused of here? And uh, we, we looked at this a uh, previous passage uh, last summer where we looked at the Jewish trial. Because Jesus, he experienced and he went through two kinds of trials. The first trial he went through was a Jewish trial. After that trial, now he is brought before uh, Pilate for the Roman trial. And what's interesting, when you look at the Jewish trial, what is Jesus accused of and what is he convicted of in that trial? They ask him this, they ask Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus is silent at first, but eventually he answers them and he responds and he says this, he says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the cloud of heaven. And that that response is kind of like the scene in A Few Good Men where uh, Tom Cruise is saying, did you order the code red? Did you order the code red? And uh, Jack Nicholson is saying, yeah, I did, you know. A little worse language, but he said, basically, right, I did order the code red, and it's a very dramatic moment. Well, after Jesus says, I am, right, you ask me that question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. They start to go crazy, right? They start to get upset. They begin to tear their garments, and they immediately declare that this man, Jesus, should be condemned to death. And they are so riled up that what they want to do is they want to bring him to Pilate first thing in the morning, in order to expedite Jesus' execution. But see, when we look at this trial here, Pilate's question is not the same as what the Jewish leaders were asking. He is not asking, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? But what is he asking in verse 2? He's saying this, are you the King of the Jews? Are you the King of the Jews? You see, the reason why Pilate is asking this question is because his concern is not theological. He doesn't care if Jesus is a blasphemer Pilate's concern here is political. He's saying this to Jesus. Are you somebody who's going to be a threat to Roman rule? Are you uh, some kind of political leader? Are you going to be someone that's going to lead an insurrection against us? See, Pilate doesn't care about this blasphemy charge that the Jewish people care so much about. But what he does care about is that Jesus not be a political leader who could potentially cause a lot of headaches for the Roman Empire. So his question seems to indicate this, that when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, they they kind of made up an accusation maybe, or they kind of said, Pilate, this is what you need to be worried about, and this is why he needs to be crucified. And you kind of see that uh, they're they're, uh, steering things in such a way to get their desired ends in which Jesus would be crucified. In some ways, That accusation, are you the king of the Jews? That accusation of being a political leader, potentially being a a rebellious leader, that is perhaps actually worse than the accusation of blasphemy uh, in certain contexts. And here's what I mean by that. You know, it's somewhat similar to a secular government uh, like the one that we have here. Uh, If someone were accused of, let's say, claiming to be God uh, in our country, you know, religious people wouldn't like it. Uh, people would be either highly offended, or people would just kind of dismiss that person as if they were crazy. Uh, they might say, well, this person who claims to be God, keep this person away from me. But that would be the extent of it. They don't really have any power to do anything about it. But if somebody in our country were accused of, let's say, being a terrorist, or someone who is trying to start uh, some kind of violent movement against the government, that mere accusation would probably, probably elicit enough hatred uh, by the wider public. You see, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why crucifixion was a choice of execution for the Roman government. See, it wasn't simply a, a way to kill someone. It wasn't simply to make them suffer. But it's also a symbol. It's a public symbol. And it's saying this. If you want to rebel against us, this is what's going to happen to you. you are going to die on a cross. Therefore, it was meant to be this public display where people would take pleasure out of seeing a political criminal die in such a way. And so we have this accusation brought before Pilate, and perhaps it's even a more serious accusation in terms of the implications of it than the ones that the Jewish leaders brought before Jesus. So how does Jesus respond then? What What is the defense? And this is our second point are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is not really a denial. and It's not really an affirmation. It's actually pretty ambiguous. Uh, on the one hand, he doesn't say, I'm not the king of the Jews. At least the kind of king that you think I am. I'm not a political rebel. Nor does Jesus say, uh, You know, I'm, I'm not going to... Pose any kind of threat to this Roman government. He doesn't say any of that. He says something vague. He says, "You have said so." Right? Even as you read it, right? Even as you heard it, what that? What does that? What does that mean? You have said so. It doesn't seem to be a very good defense, does it? But why is Jesus so ambiguous in this defense? And uh, perhaps it might be because the answer to that question is actually yes and no. How is the answer no? Well, when Pilate is asking if Jesus is king of the Jews, he's thinking along political nationalistic lines. And although that's the type of Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting, that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. And therefore, his concern is not about making the nation of Israel great again, but his concern is much greater in scope. Jesus' concern is ultimately for the kingdom of God. And the scope of that kingdom goes beyond mere politics, and it goes beyond mere nationalistic desires. And therefore, when the soldiers mock Jesus later on for being king of the Jews, they misunderstand the nature of what Jesus' kingship and power is. Because you see, Jesus, his power is not primarily political in nature, but his power is actually spiritual in nature. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, there's a section in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus, he's being asked, you know, is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar? And basically the purpose of that question is to trap Jesus, to have him commit to a particular political agenda. And some Jewish groups would say, this tax that's being charged by Caesar is wrong and therefore we should not pay it. And if Jesus said that we should pay taxes to Caesar, it would have been seen as him siding with uh, the Romans. On the other hand, if he says that, hey, we should not pay these taxes, then he would have been seen as siding with the political agenda of the rebels. And no matter how Jesus answered, he could have gotten sucked into a particular political agenda. But Jesus doesn't get allow himself to get sucked in, and he gives this very brilliant answer, and he says this, "'Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's.' And people marveled at him at his answer." And I think basically what this shows is, Jesus, is, again, uh, doesn't want to say, you know, I'm here for your political agenda— Jesus is refusing to side with a particular political agenda while at the same time keeping in track with what God's agenda for him is concerning the kingdom of God. You see, in that sense, Jesus, are you king of the Jews? Well, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. On the other hand, the answer is actually kind of yes, because there is a sense in which it is true that Jesus is king of the Jews, since his concern is primarily the kingdom of God, it means that the kingdom requires a king, does it not? And Jesus is that king. And that point is made through the Gospels and highlighted when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And uh, let, me, you know, let me be honest with you. Uh, I think we use terms like the kingdom of God a lot. And I didn't know what it meant until I got to seminary. Right? I would even use that phrase a lot too. What exactly is the kingdom of God? What does it mean? And I think just to put it very simply and uh, very concisely, I think we could say this. The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of our king, of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, when Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God, it means that he is the king who is coming to rule and reign over all things, over all creation over heaven and earth. And in that sense, the accusation of Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, in one sense, is actually 100% tr- true. He is the king, not only the king that they thought he was, but he is the king who would establish his reign and his rule and usher in his kingdom all by dying upon a cross. See, If you're a believer or if uh, you want to become a believer, uh, that's probably one of the things that you have to come to grips with. And let me just say this. It's not a popular view of Jesus in Western culture because Western culture is a culture that doesn't like to uh, submit to authority figures. Uh, in Western culture, authority primarily resides within us, within the individual. And submission tends to be viewed as something that is weak or something that is oppressive uh, or something that's just generally not attractive to us. There's this um, Disney movie that came out a couple years ago called Planes. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. I don't know how popular it was. But uh, in this movie, it's it's basically about this plane, and it was created to be a crop duster. But dusting crops is not satisfying to this plane, and what this plane wants to do is become a racing plane. And the message that is basically communicated through that movie is this – It doesn't really matter what you were created to do, but you should be what you want to be. Uh, Even though you were created to dust crops, you can and should uh, be a plane that races other planes. And I think to most people when we watch that movie, it's like, well, that's such an inspiring message. Yes, uh, it doesn't matter what people say I should be or what I'm designed to do. All that matters is what's within me and what I think I should do. And what I want to do. And I think in that narrative, what it's basically pointing out is this. Authority doesn't reside in something external, but something within ourselves. Something within our desires. Something within the individual. So much so that even, uh, even what we're created to be or do or to design, I could say, uh, we don't have to submit to that either. Now, if Jesus is our king... It means this, it means we're under his reign and his rule. It means that we are called to be a people who submit to his law, to his rule, to his design. And I think the way that the average modern person would look at that, they would say, that's not freedom. Uh, That means that God uh, just wants to take away our joy. That means that God uh, doesn't really want what's best for me. That means that God does not. Uh, he just wants to restrain me and prevent me from being the person that I am truly meant to be. And the seed of that thought is actually not something new, but it actually finds its roots in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent says to Eve, "Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" And that little one statement there, the serpent is doing a lot. The serpent is leading Eve not to be tempted by the fruit alone, but to be to be tempted to think these kinds of thoughts. Man, isn't God unreasonable? Does does God really want your best? Does God really want you to to flourish? And that essentially is a temptation of the serpent. And I think that's something that tempts all of us as well. So therefore, when we think about the idea that Jesus is our king, that we are called to submit to him, that we are even called to obey him, ah, that sounds so unappealing. Actually, That means we've bought into the lie of the serpent. The lie that Eve uh, um, bought into in Genesis chapter 3. But here's what God's counsel says. Here's what the Bible pictures in terms of our relationship with a king. It actually says we need a king. We need to be under authority of a a good king. Uh, We need to uh, be under not our own authority and do what our own desires wants. But in a sense, we have to be in a position where we submit and obey. And it also says when we are in that position, it's not bondage, it's not slavery, it's actually freedom. That's what freedom is. See, when we see Jesus as king, when we submit to him, to his rule, that's actually when we begin to experience true freedom, friends. That's when we begin to experience true wholeness that's when we begin to flourish as the very people that we were created to be. So is Jesus king of the Jews? No. If you're talking about a political figure, is Jesus king of the Jews? Yes. You're talking about the king, of the kingdom of God. But I think there's something else that we need to see here about Jesus' defense, and that's this. Now, after Jesus responds to Pilate for the first time, Pilate asks him another question in verse 4, and he says this, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And Jesus responds in verse 5 with silence. didn't say anything. I think part of the reason is probably a reference to Isaiah 53, where it talks about how the servant of the Lord would not open his mouth and would be silent. But I also think, just uh, narratively speaking, in the context of the story, we have this amazing picture, uh, this amazing contrast between Jesus and the crowds. The chief priests and the crowds, they are the ones who seem to be very worked up and a little bit out of control, and they're shouting, crucify him. And even when Pilate asks them, what evil has he done? They don't even answer the question, and they shout, crucify him. And perhaps the silence of Jesus in contrast to these shouts of the crowd is really a demonstration that Jesus is the one who is strong. That Jesus is the one who is ultimately in control. That Jesus knows these things must take place in order for his mission to be fulfilled, in order for God's plan of salvation for us to be accomplished. You go back to Gethsemane, and after Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, you have the sense that he resolves to know what has to be done, what has to take place in order for his mission to be completed. And therefore, his silence, it's not passive. But I think it comes out of a great determination to do the very thing that God is calling him to do upon the cross. And you see in this way, I think this is important. Nobody took Jesus' life. The Jews didn't take Jesus' life. Pilate didn't take Jesus' life. But Jesus gave up his life in obedience and love for us. Perhaps that's why we read in verse 5, after Jesus was silent, Pilate was amazed. He was amazed. Just like after Jesus responded to the question about Caesar, the crowds were amazed. Pilate is amazed here. So this leads to our final point. So what's the verdict? Well, this is a familiar story to most of us, I'm sure. It's simple. We just read it. What is the verdict? The verdict is this. Crucify him. Crucify him. There is great tragedy and great beauty in that verdict. With respect to its tragedy, think how unfair this is. Think about the great injustice. I don't know about you, but when you hear about court cases of people who were actually innocent, but they were sentenced and they lived in prison for 40, 50 years and only later found out that they were innocent. You kind of think to yourself, man, that's so unfair. Think about the injustice. Even Pilate himself, he can see that Jesus didn't deserve to be crucified. In verse 10, it tells us, right? Pilate perceived that it was actually out of envy that the chief priest delivered him up. Envy. You know, in an age of advertising, envy is supposed to be the engine that that stirs our economy, stirs our desire. We see what the next person has and we say, oh, I need that. But you know, in the Bible, envy is uh, the deep evil. Uh, Envy leads to all kinds of evil. Envy says that we are needy people even though we have probably more than we actually need. And thus, envy can make us To greedy people. Envy makes us competitive and thus envy makes us measure our value and our worth against others. Envy makes us into a jealous people and thus envy makes us hate others and try to destroy others. And to uplift ourselves even at the cost of others. See that's what these chief priests are struggling with. Even Pilate can see it. They're struggling with envy. The tragedy of this verdict lies in the fact that it is out of their envy, not out of fairness, not out of justice, that Jesus is condemned to a cross. What evil has this man done? Crucify him. There's also a great deal of beauty. There's a lot of beauty that we see in this. And the beautiful portion of this is it reveals God's love. That Jesus would experience this, that he would go to the cross, that he would suffer this kind of injustice so that we might be set free so that we might have life. There's another man in this narrative by the name of Barabbas. And it says here that as was accustomed during Passover feast, Pilate would release one prisoner. And Pilate asks them, "Uh, should I release Jesus? But no, they ask, no, release Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? Barabbas is, according to this passage, a murderer. uh, A rebel of the insurrection. So therefore, Barabbas is guilty on several levels. He's guilty under Jewish law for murder. He's guilty under Roman law for his involvement in the insurrection. If anybody is clearly guilty here, it's this man Barabbas. If anyone is clearly innocent here, it's Jesus. But somehow, Barabbas is the one who is freed Barabbas is the one who is released. Barabbas is the one who is saved. And Jesus is the one who is condemned to a cross. Barabbas goes free, escapes death, avoids punishment, the very punishment that he deserves. Jesus is condemned. Jesus receives death. And Jesus takes on a punishment that he doesn't deserve. See, in that exchange right there, that little exchange, we are actually shown a wonderful, beautiful picture of the gospel. You know, I know sometimes the gospel can be something that's difficult to grasp because there is such a depth there that is almost inexhaustible. Uh, Sometimes it can feel like the Christian faith uh, is difficult to understand because the Bible is such a large book, and there seems to be so many perspectives and interpretations about so many different things out there. The gospel, there's also a wonderful simplicity to the gospel. I think we see the simplicity of it in this picture of Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned. Barabbas, the guilty one, goes free. Barabbas is spared and is given life. Jesus is scourged and given death. Friends, that's the gospel. You see, we are We are like Barabbas. You see that? We are the guilty ones. We are the ones who are deserving of condemnation and punishment. And yet because of Jesus, we are the ones that get to go free. You know, I think um, these days, uh, people seem to be more concerned about our feeling of guilt rather than uh, our actual guilt. And I, I think that can be a little bit problematic when it comes to receiving the gospel. You know, some people don't necessarily feel guilt because they'll say, you know, I'm essentially a good person. I just occasionally do uh, bad things, but I'm a good person at heart. Or other people may not feel guilt because you know, they don't believe in a moral standard, and they just say, well, what's right for you is right for you, but what's right for me is right for me. Uh, who's to judge? And perhaps more relevant to, to our community, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, maybe our, our guilt is mis- a little bit misdirected. You know, some people feel guilty because uh, they feel like they've disappointed their parents in various ways, and so they feel guilty, or they should do more uh, for their parents, and there's a sense of guilt. Uh, or other people, if you are a parent, maybe you feel guilty because you feel like uh, you disappointed your, your children in some way. But even that, that guilt is misdirected because uh, then the solution becomes this, Uh, It doesn't have to involve Jesus at all, but the solution basically has to do with our feelings of guilt. And it becomes saying, well, we just have to affirm to one another that you're a good person. Uh, We just have to affirm that you are a good son, that you're a good daughter, or that you're a good parent. And as long as you can affirm that, as long as you can atone for that and make up for that, then these feelings of guilt will perhaps go away. The question is not, do we feel guilty? Of course, that's secondary I think the primary question that we have to wrestle with this, uh, with is this. Are we guilty? Before God, are we guilty? Have we sinned against Him or have we not? Do we deserve punishment or do we not? These are just very stark questions, I know. These are very, uh, kind of in your face questions, I know. I do think these are the questions that need to be asked if we're really going to understand the beauty of what Jesus did here. I think we have to be able to uh, answer these questions and understand that we are guilty before God we're going to identify with somebody like Barabbas. Because once we can identify with Barabbas, then we can start to see the beauty of the cross. Then we can start to be amazed by this great demonstration of love by Jesus as he went to die upon the cross. Then it'll actually mean something that we go free, that we are given life. But Jesus is crucified and given death. You know, last week I said this. uh, What do we need the most? What does our church need the most? What do we as individuals need the most? We, We need to experience the love of Christ. And how does that happen? I think it really happens when we begin to have a deep understanding of our sin. Sometimes that comes out when we really screw up and we can't really help but be confronted by our sin and we just feel like dirt but you know, sometimes it happens when actually you sense the presence of God. And God becomes a reality to you.
0: And when you
1: sense the presence of God, you get a greater sense of his holiness. And you really see in view of the beauty and the holiness of God, who we really are. When was the last time you really experienced the freedom of being forgiven? When was the last time you really felt convicted? Not in your head, but in your heart. That you are guilty before God. You know, if we don't have these experiences, then uh, here's what I think happens to many of us. This story that we're going to look at the next month, the story of Jesus, the story of the cross, it just becomes a nice story. But if we are convicted of our own guilt, of our own sin, of our own transgression, of our own brokenness, and if we can receive and rest in the promise of the gospel, which offers to us forgiveness and life and salvation. And this story doesn't just become a story. This story becomes a story that we belong to. It's a story that we can participate in. And if we're part of that story, it gives us great power. No longer do we have to wallow in self-pity and say to God, Ah, life is not fair. Why is my life like this? And other people's life is so much better. We won't say that because, remember, well, you know, in God's story, Jesus suffered the greatest injustice himself. Who are we to complain about life not being fair? We don't have to be insecure and stand in the judgment of others or wonder about God's judgment upon us because Jesus gives us the very security that we need. And he looks upon us with love and acceptance because he sees us through the lens of Christ, through his blood. We don't have to be so worried and consumed about Making a name for ourselves about leaving a legacy of how great we are and all that we accomplished. Because Jesus endured the cross so that our names can be written in the book of life. There is power in the gospel, friends. There is power in this story that we are going to look at. I know I know life in New York, the pace of life can be so fast. And uh, because it's so fast, we're just worried about getting from point A to point B. And when we're worried about getting from point A to point B, we miss things. We miss the beauty and the tragedy of this gospel story of the cross. Uh, We lose perspective. Life becomes a little bit more narrow. We become inwardly focused and consumed with our own problems and our own selves. This month, what I encourage you and challenge you to do Take a stroll. Uh, slow down. Notice this story. And don't, don't just worry about getting from point A to point B. Because the more we really take this story into our hearts, I think the more we're going to be changed. I think the more joy we're going to have. I think the more peace we will have. I think our mission will be more powerful I think we'll speak with greater conviction and boldness. I think we'll treat our spouses and our children better. I think we'll be better co-workers. But it starts here, friends, with this story. It starts with understanding this great exchange that took place. Let me end with this and conclude with a a prayer. This is a Puritan prayer. And I, I thought it described this exchange so eloquently. And it goes like this. Christ was all anguish that I might be full of joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. You see what Jesus did. You see why it matters. If we can let that sink into our hearts, how can we not respond to him in worship? How can we not offer our lives to him? How can we not consider it the greatest and the highest privilege to serve the very king who died for us? Can't. This is a story. This is the story of Jesus' road to the cross. And it's a beautiful story that we need to be a part of. Let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, give you some time to reflect as the worship team leads us.